I think you have to be interested in looking at things differently than is expected. Otherwise, you're just another blah, blah, blah guy on the radio. You have a curiosity about people. So why would you be doing this? Well, because you like learning about people. Everybody has a story. You just have to know how to get it out of them. So to get people to talk to me, you have to kind of know what buttons to push. And I loved getting something out of people that they didn't think they would share with me. I have that in common with a couple of books I've written as well. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. The Sidcast is nothing if it's not about stories. And I love to find people that have not just an interesting story to tell, but interesting stories to tell people that have just done whatever they've done in their career and would be kind of the ideal person to have a long lunch with or go for a long walk on a pleasant day. And my guest today on this episode of the Sidcast qualifies on both of those scores. His name is Mike Morin. He is a broadcaster. He's a radio guy. He's been on the radio for decades. In New Hampshire, in particular, he's written for various uh, newspapers and magazines, including the Boston Globe. He's written a couple of books, one of which is called 50 Shades of Radio, which gives you a bit of a feel. And he's a good guy. He's an interesting guy. And I don't even remember how I came across Mike. I think I read something about him in a magazine that had an article about New Hampshire personalities. And I thought, boy, he is interesting. And I don't think this episode is going to disappoint. We'll talk about how he got onto radio in the first place. I mean, how do you start on radio? You hear all these stories over the years, this background of people. How do you get on the radio? What does it mean to be on the radio today anyways? I mean, you're listening to a podcast now after all, aren't you? It's a form of radio, except that you control the dial and the time and the playback speed and everything else. And you have an almost unlimited number of things you can listen to via podcast and digital radio for that matter. So it's really kind of interesting to think about the radio business, to think about Mike's role in there. I think he started in radio when he was 19 years old and he jokes about how he made more money as a janitor at McDonald's than he did in the radio business. But he made it his life. He made it his career, been heavily involved. He's interviewed, well, being in New Hampshire with the primaries, being early in New Hampshire, New Hampshire being the first real primary for, well, just about forever, except maybe 2024, as we recently heard about some changes in the offing where New Hampshire will be early, but not quite as early as before. But in any event, with New Hampshire being really a primary place for retail politics, for people to become known, everybody who's running for president goes through New Hampshire, goes through the radio stations, and he's interviewed everyone Mike Morin has, including Barack Obama, and he has an interesting story to share about that as well. He's all about the stories, and I love that, and I think that's one of the reasons why people like to listen to this podcast as we get into all kinds of topics, but I try really here to be his foil and say, okay, what about this? What about that? And tell me about that and tell me about this. And he comes through. So it's a fun podcast. We're getting close, by the way, to the end of season four. This is episode number 152. After this one, there will only be two more. And then it's time for my seasonal break from the podcasting business as I go off and do many, many, many other things. So hope you enjoy this episode. I know I really did talking to Mike Morin. And here he is on the Sitcast. 
Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Mike Morin. Hello there, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Nice to see you and hear you. It's great to have you on. I don't really have a lot of other people from New Hampshire other than maybe a few Dartmouth professors here and there. So that's a treat. We're going to talk about your career. We're going to talk about some of the lessons learned along the way. We're going to talk about radio business. You're a somewhat new podcaster. Now, that, of course, is rhetorical because everyone is a somewhat new podcaster. It hasn't been around that long. This is my fourth season, but that still is not exactly a veteran. And, you know, whatever else comes up, I know you had a chance over the years to talk to some pretty cool people, including President Obama, and we'll want to hear about that as well. So let's start at the beginning. When did you know or think you wanted to be on the radio? Well, I'm not sure how old you are, Sid, but I'm reasonably sure that you don't remember a show in the 1950s starring a host called Warren Hall. And I can't even remember the name of the show, but it was on TV in the mid-50s, and I remember watching it, and this guy would come out from behind a curtain and start talking to people. So I started doing that for my parents in the living room. And of course, every kid is adorable doing stupid stuff like that. And that just slowly progressed into, I guess, a need to feed my being in front of people Jones that I apparently need. So by the time I was 11 years old, that eventually morphed into wanting to do radio because going to private school, I had to take a bus because that's just the way it was. But then we moved to a new location, no bus service, had to ride in the car with my parents. And that's when I heard morning radio in Detroit, which is a great market for really cool things. So I heard it every day and I thought, man, these people are having fun. I need to do that someday. That's when I was 11 and I am still doing it today. So we're going to take a quick tangent because you said Detroit is a cool place for new trends. Tell us a little bit about that. What's in that category? Back then, Detroit was still pretty much a thriving metropolis. A lot of bad things have happened since then that I'm sure people have heard about. But even today, as a rebuilt city in many ways, culturally, and I think food is one area in the downtown, Greektown and other portions, farmer's market area, that's really become very popular. But also homesteading in Detroit kind of surprised me where some of the homes that have been torn down, the lots are available and people can pick it up for $10,000 and build these beautiful homes. And suddenly you're living in a new neighborhood. There's even an HGTV show where these guys, these builders, they go Mm -hmm. into neighborhoods and these little cracker box houses, kind of like the one I grew up in, and they redo it and they do like a whole block at a time if they get enough people on board. So people are rediscovering Detroit. Sounds like you have a soft spot for the city. It's a lot of years since you lived there, I take it. It is. I do have a soft spot because it gets beaten up a lot. And I understand it. And some of that is deserved. But I have lots of great memories. I left for my real radio career in 1974, 75. So it's been many, many years. I don't live there. I only get back maybe once a year. Not even all my family lives there. They've moved on to Chicago, San Diego, and other places. A few of them are still in the Detroit area. Did you grow up a baseball fan? I did. I did. In 1968 was... It's exactly what I'm thinking about. 1968, it was the Cardinals and the Tigers, right? That was the era of Bob Gibson with a one point, what, one ERA or some crazy number. There wasn't good enough. Mickey Lolich and all these superstars, right? Yeah, you're right. And of course, the biggest star that season, Sid, was a pitcher by the name of Denny McLean, a name that you didn't mention, but I'm sure that you remember. So Danny McLean has a very checkered past and has done some not really good things. However, I forgive him because in the last few years, I have been able to emcee a fundraiser every year of the New Hampshire Baseball Dinner, which happens in Manchester. And for a couple of those years, Danny McLean was one of the nostalgia baseball players they brought back. And I got to meet him and talk about him as he was on the dais with some other really big stars. And so that was kind of cool for my childhood 
I got to hang out and actually talk in front of a thousand people about Denny McClain. So when you were listening to talk radio in your parents' car, I mean, you, so you liked it, you thought that was cool. Do you, you have you know, any recollection of like, what were you hearing? Just these guys, probably two guys, right? On the radio, talking, having a good time, providing information, doing kind of cool stuff. Maybe you could draw out what that feeling was like at that time. Yeah, I think you described it well in a very kind of innocuous way. I don't recall anything other than the host of the show, whose name was Fred Wolf. What's interesting about Fred Wolf, besides the fact that he was able to engage an 11-year-old and make me want to listen, the fact he also hosted a weekly network bowling show, which has been a big part of my life, actually. A big fan since I was five or six. And he was the host of this show that I watched every week. So when I got a little bit older and suddenly I'm hearing him on the radio, that had an added, I guess, attraction for me as well. So, Mike, what did your parents do? My mom was a stay-at-home mom of seven kids. I'm the oldest. And my dad was a draftsman and became a sales engineer in the automotive business in Detroit. And who doesn't work for the auto industry? Although not as many as the old days. So seven kids. Wow. Any other kids go into radio or some of the more public facing things you've done? No, most of them actually went on to become successful, unlike my <laughs> I have a brother who is a pediatric dentist, and you mentioned President Obama a few moments ago. Two of his patients in Chicago where he practiced were Sasha and Malia Obama. Your brother, yeah, brother was Chris. the dentist for the Obama girls. The Obama kids, that's right. He just recently retired. He's in his mid-50s and is out in San Diego enjoying the rewards of having worked so hard all those years in a good industry. And I have a sister who was a fourth grade teacher, my baby sister. I have a sister who was in the catering business and a sister who was also a stay-at-home mom and a brother who owned a supply production business that supplied various factories in Detroit with specialty parts that they needed to do their assembly line work. So he's done really well and now lives in Naples, Florida. So that tells you how well he did. There's a pattern of moving south and warm. There uh, is, yes. <laughs> yeah, and you and I are here in New Hampshire. I mean, what's wrong with that picture? I love it. And I'm sure you do too, Sid. Yes, yes, I do. Isn't it interesting, you know, different kids, same upbringing, more or less. I mean, same parents end up doing, I'm one of three boys, so not seven, but we all end up doing different things or there's obviously similarities, but we're very different. I always find that interesting, you know, how do people become who they end up becoming? Yeah. And the difference between siblings, you know, I just have one child, but I know a lot of people who have two, they couldn't be more different. Usually the firstborn tends to be a little bit more toe the line and do what's expected. And then the second one, just kind of 180 degrees away from that. Now I have multiple siblings, so I can't really put any of them in that kind of category, but the people I know that have two kids, they couldn't be further apart in personality and everything else. So Mike, let's get back. So you're 11, you're really getting into it. You were going to school. Did you try to get into radio right away? Not till I graduated from high school, I should say. I took the basic courses, college prep that you do. I went to St. Clement High School in Centerline, Michigan, private school, and where there were many, many more in that day, not so much anymore. Went to the University of Detroit, which is a Jesuit uh, establishment, college in the Motor City. And I immediately went to work at the student radio station because I said, I need to try this out with equipment and see how it feels. And I was not disappointed. Within a year, I actually had my first professional radio job while I was still in college. So I was driven and I was determined that I was not going to wait till I got my degree to get that first job. You hear these stories. I'm sure there are other fields like this, but radio is one of them. That it's not exactly a standard career path. You have to go for it. You got to hustle. You got to take whatever job you can. 
try to move to different opportunities whenever they appear. I remember reading, uh, you know, about the legendary Larry King's career as a talk show host all the way up to CNN, obviously pretty famous, but jumping around to different places, lots of ups and downs. I'm going to guess that you had a somewhat similar journey in the sense moving where there was a new opportunity. But did you stick with radio all the way through? Because there had to have been a couple of down periods there. They don't give you tenure for being on the radio. Yeah, that's true. And yes, I've had lots of jobs, but not as many wives as Larry King. Let's just get that out there. I uh, enjoyed living in places like Toledo, Ohio. I know you're jealous, Sid. Then I moved on to the nation's first all-comedy radio station, which was really cool in Washington, D.C., then up to New York. So you can see that I'm circling around the uh, northeastern part of the country, then to Boston, then to New Hampshire, then retire, back to work, retire. And I'm back to work. I'm not very good at retirement, Sid. Boston's close enough. It's a suburb of New Hampshire, we like to say, not the other way around. Right. But how'd you end up in New Hampshire, really, of all the places you could have ended up? It truly is, you know, the adjacency. I had been in Boston and after 13 months got swept out of my job that I actually read about in the morning paper that day, the Boston Herald, that my partner and I were going to get tossed out. And we did. We had fun with it, though, before it happened. I got like maybe five or six months severance pay and said, well, there's no real rush. Let's just take a breather because I've been getting up doing mornings and that takes its toll, too, when you're up at three o'clock in the morning. By chance, ran into somebody who I used to work with who got a job in New Hampshire. She'd worked in Boston. She then went up to New Hampshire and I just ran into her and said, hey, we need somebody to fill in for a couple of weeks at our station. Can you do that? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Has no intention of staying beyond two weeks. And two weeks turned into 20 years almost. What makes a good talk show host and morning talk show host in particular on the radio? Ours was kind of a hybrid show. It was never a strict talk show. We played records, but we did more talking any other part of the day. I think you have to be interested in looking at things differently than is expected. Otherwise, you're just another blah, blah, blah guy on the radio. You have to, and I know this is one of the traits that you have. You know, I did my homework on you, Sidlet. I'm not going to lie. You have a curiosity about people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this. I don't think you're a busy man at, at an Ivy League school, at Tuck Business School. So why would you be doing this? Well, because you like learning about people. And I've always said that everybody has a story. You just have to know how to get it out of them. So to get people to talk to me, you have to kind of know what buttons to push. And I loved getting something out of people that they didn't think they would share with me. I had that in common with a couple of books I've written as well. Now you're making me think for some examples of that, like people dishing out uh, private information or gossip that they never thought they would say. What would be an example or two of that? You know what? That's a really hard question because after close to 12,000 shows, (laughs) having played 400,000 records, yes, I did the math on that because I'm a stats guy. It's really difficult. And maybe I'll think of one along the way. But I do remember one morning, this is as much visual as anything else we offered. I was at a station owned by Kurt Gowdy. I don't know if that name is familiar to you. Kurt Gowdy, a baseball name. Absolutely right. He owned the station and we were in downtown Lawrence, which is just north of Boston. And we got on the air and we said, hey, I got tickets for Guns N' Roses, the, the band Guns N' Roses. So this is obviously back in the 80s. First person to come on down, get naked and do a snow angel in front of our studio window. Gets the tickets. Lady shows up here just a few minutes later with the two kids looking out the back window of the car. I mean, she kept her underwear on, but I mean, she was in the cold 30 degree weather making snow angels. Now, this is something that, yes, we had to bribe her, but people will do anything if you ask right and just give them a bit of a carrot. That's a pretty wild story. I don't know whether that would fly today, tell you the truth. Yeah, even though it was her choice to do it, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, actually, let me ask you about that. How has the radio business changed, do you think? I mean, it's changed a lot, like everything has, especially with digital and podcasts, but how would you answer that over the time? Yeah, I would say, just in my own situation, radio has not gotten more creative. That's why I got into it. I enjoyed the theater of the mind aspect of it, getting people to give me something back if I give them something crazy. And because radio is largely corporate, there's these mega companies, they're beholden to the stockholders. They have a staff of lawyers. And I can tell you a little later, maybe you're going to ask me about the tall ships stunt, the kind of thing that if I try to do that today for a publicly held station, they would let me do it. Well, I worked for a mom and pop station when I've done some really wacky stuff and it worked out well for the most part. So I would say it's become corporate. It's become a lot of it pre-recorded. I challenge many people to tell me when they're listening to a radio station, if the DJ is in the studio or 500 miles away, inserting computerized voice track, which happens a lot, or maybe it's coming from Sirius XM radio. So there are fewer positions because of all the voice tracking where one person could be the voice of, say, five radio stations. Take a couple hours to do that. Happens all the time. And people like Howard Stern, I don't know how many people lost their jobs because now he occupies that time. Not anymore, of course, because he's on satellite radio. And who else? People like Rush Limbaugh and Dr. Laura. These are all people that were fed by satellite in syndication. And that means local radio took a hit. And that is the worst thing about all this shit is that Local radio is less local and local is what you need to succeed. Yeah. You know what? There's probably some truth to that in other aspects of media. If you think about local newspaper business, there are newspapers still in many towns or regions, but they're so thin. They're so tiny. It's so difficult to survive. We have one here It's called the Valley News, which I'm sure you know. It's a perfectly good local paper. But even in my time living up here, which is 30 years almost, it must have shrunk by more than 50% because who's putting in classified ads anymore? Everything's on Google. It's kind of amazing that the radio business held on. I have a sense that there's been a resurgence in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years. Maybe that's the corporate thing where they're buying up a whole bunch of different radio stations, consolidating the back office, maybe doing some of that digital, the term you use. Voice tracking. You know, where you're voice tracking. Yeah. Maybe there's a model out there about how you can make more money with more radio stations. But having those unique local voices, that's what I grew up. I grew up in Montreal actually. Oh, okay. And I remember very well, both CFCF, which was 600 and CJD 800. They were the two major English language radio stations, Montreal being a predominantly French speaking city. There were many, many more that were French language radio stations. I remember it well, and there was never a morning, never a morning where that wasn't on in the kitchen the second you came down for some cereal and running out the door. And they'd have a formula that if you only had 15 minutes, you'd hear what you need to hear. Kind of like that New York station. What is it? 10, 10 wins. Yeah. We'll give you the world. We'll give you the world. <laughs> well, in Montreal, they did in 15 minutes. You got the sports, you got the weather, you got the headlines, got the traffic and off you go. I've kind of missed that because I haven't had it now for a long, long time. And I grew up with it. Yeah. I don't know. You're in the Lebanon area in the beautiful upper valley. I don't think there are too many stations that have really active full service morning shows like metropolitan area, like Montreal. And you totally nailed it. You have to get all that information in just a couple of minutes. For instance, in the greater Manchester area, where I spent nearly 20 years doing morning radio, we did the research to show the average person listened for 25 minutes. That's good to know because I could repeat some of the same stuff two hours later to a whole new audience. And don't work harder, work smarter is how I looked at material that I had written or put together. So you've got to give people... Obviously, the weather, the news, 
some gossip, some chatter, whatever they want to hear. And that was what I loved about morning radio is I got to really be me. It was like I was at their breakfast table and they were going to come sit with me for a few minutes and they wanted to know what happened when I took my dog to the vet yesterday or I had a flat tire that I talked about. They need to find out because that's what happens to them. And they like to identify with somebody who's like them. Exactly right. You know, you've got a lot of great stories. You referenced the tall ships stunt. Why don't you share that one with us? <laughs> that was one of my favorites, Sid. Right around 2000, I was working at a small suburban station in Nashua, New Hampshire, which is right on the state line with Massachusetts. And at that time, the tall ships were making a visit to Boston Harbor, Charlestown Navy Yard. And it seemed like every night, all the new stations opened with that story. Now, yes, it visually, it's very exciting. It's beautiful. The history is very engaging, but I got to do something with this. So after a couple of days, I got on the air and I announced that one of the tall ships has left Boston Harbor, sailed north past Gloucester and down the Merrimack River and docked at the Songus Arena in Lowell, Massachusetts. Think about that. The Merrimack River, lots of rocks, 18 bridges. How is a tall ship with a mast height of probably 100 feet or more going to do that? Well, because people are so hate to drive into Boston sometimes that when you tell them something, they only hear what they want to hear. And that turned out to be the case. The key to this whole thing was that I was able to get a listener before I actually did the story on the air, off air, recorded. I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a joke that the tall ships came to uh, Lowell. And would you just kind of go along with me and add whatever you like? Well, I really got lucky because she started describing the ship. I think she even gave me the name and waving the people, you know. So that legitimized what I said, because I'd been known to do stunts like that, but she legitimized it. So one lady in Hudson, New Hampshire, which is the next town over, drove down later that afternoon to find the tall ships in Lowell and, oh, oh, Mm. it's not there. The Europa is not there. So she called the local newspaper, complained about what I did. And somehow, I don't know how, but they had my home phone number. So the uh, National Telegraph, who I write for now, but didn't then, called me and asked, what's the deal? And I said, look, I can't comment on that. You'll have to talk to the manager. I don't speak for the station. We hop up. With, I hung up with the reporter, called my boss immediately, said, hey, look, I think we can get some mileage out of this. Go along and say that you're suspending me, that I did an irresponsible thing, a la War of the Worlds, although not with quite the same intensity. And um, so I ended up on the front page above the fold of the paper the next day. And what's interesting is there's a picture of my face and in the background, you see all these boxes of tea, Tetley tea bags and salada, because I announced that I'm being suspended for doing this. And so one guy came down with hundreds of boxes, hundreds of tea bags and cup boxes, dumped them in the parking lot, his own Boston Tea Party to protest me getting suspended. So it worked better than I ever could have imagined. Nobody got her. And I did take that day off. So I drove to Connecticut, Foxwoods, and made $200 playing blackjack. That sounds like a win-win. But now I'm going to just ask you, yes, you're known as a funny guy. So you've done other stunts that you just described. But what about the concern of breaking that bond, if you will, with listeners? Because you fooled them. One woman didn't like it, that complained. But I guess it's the balance. How many people are laughing along with you versus how many people saying, you know, that guy's a jerk. He shouldn't have done that. Oh, I'm sure there were a few of those. But I think for the most part, after a 35-year run doing stuff like this, people kind of knew that would happen. If it was the first day they listened, then they probably felt like they were had. But people who had followed me from other stations where I had done crazy stuff like being buried alive and some other stuff, thought, oh yeah, it's just another white born prank. Just another one. 
Yeah. And actually what you're just describing is really pretty light compared to some of the Howard Stern, because you mentioned him, some of the things he's done over the years. I think it's still while he was in the radio and then Sirius XM. But now you're telling me you were buried alive. So, okay. Oh, oh yeah. You're still here. We're looking at you. Yes. It didn't work. I have six more lives. Said I've burned three so far. So somebody came to me in 1989. I'm working for Kurt Gowdy at his station. And they said, we wonder if you would allow yourself to be buried alive for 48 hours in a box under recyclable trash to call attention to recycling. We went kind of ahead of our time there. So, you know, I asked a few questions. I said, sure, I'll do it. And they did pay me for this, by the way. And full disclosure, it wasn't just me, you know, hey, Greta Thunberg in early. So they buried me in this box and all kinds of people showed up. And it, of course, it made the papers because... Yeah, nobody does this. The thing I'm finding, though, is people are horrified because most people are claustrophobic, which I am not. So I was in a box a little bit bigger than a coffin. I could sit up. There was a camera where my feet were looking toward me so people could actually come and visit and see me on a TV monitor. But the kind of cool part of it is they had this guy named Dr. Sokini. Think of Carnival Barker. All right. So if that doesn't tell you that this is just a big scam, (laughs) but we are calling attention to the environment. So part of the thing was, and as a picture in my book, 50 Shades of Radio, I'm doing it. I'll try to describe it. I was much younger then and had a much stronger abs and core. He actually had me lay between two chairs where my head was on the edge of one chair and my heels on the other. So there was nothing supporting my body. I could never do that now, by the way. So he starts talking to me in a hypnotic trance and I have been hypnotized before, which is one of the cruelest things. So I knew that I could give myself over to him. And he says, make your body as rigid as you can, you know, your rebar, your cement, your all this stuff. So while he's talking to me, I feel just some very light touching on my stomach, but I didn't open my eyes because I was really focused. And about 10 years later, somebody showed me a video of that. Nobody told me this. The guy was walking on me, on my unsupported body. Wow. He had suggested so successfully to me that I become as rigid as possible. And blew my mind because I'm a little guy at the time. I probably weighed 140 pounds and he was about my size, as I recall. But still, that could never happen to me. He was walking on top of your stomach. Yes. And on the unsupported part. Unsupported. And you didn't know that was happening. Nope. No, it just felt like a very light somebody was rubbing my stomach. No. It is kind of amazing. I have to find some, I don't know what it is, brain scientists to explain how. Please do. Physiology. How is this possible? <laughs> I understand the power of the mind. I understand you might believe you can do it, but you could believe that you could jump 100 feet in the air. You're not going to jump 100 feet in the air, whether you're hypnotized or not. Well, that was my next promotion, but we'll yeah. save that for the next <laughs> interview. So you've also interviewed, speaking of, a lot of interesting people over the years. And we'll talk about President Obama in a moment. But okay. Who are some of your favorites? Yeah, that was a good one. Maury Povich, if you remember him, oh, the talk yeah, shows. Maury <laughs> Povich. Is he crazy in person the way he shows on TV? Or that's an act? This was actually over the phone. I saw a number of talk show hosts. I got to interview Jay Leno. It was right after he took over for Johnny Carson and had the big public brouhaha with David Letterman. <clears throat> Thing is, Jay Leno grew up in the town right next to Lawrence. He grew up in Andover. And so I was actually going up to the Grammys in California in 1993. And we said, let's see if we can get Jay Lau. He just took over the tonight show. So while we were there, I got to go into his office and interview him. And he was a little cat and mouse about the Letterman thing. I probably wasn't as good of an interviewer as maybe I am now or should have been. Uh, So that was very memorable. 
Tony Bennett was terrific. That one was in person. And what's funny, this was also at the Grammys. There were four or five stations invited to be there. We were one of them and they put us in a hotel ballroom so we could set up our equipment. Howard Stern was there. There was a station from Buffalo. We were there and maybe a couple of others. So Tony Bennett comes in because he's associated with music, of course. And as soon as he's done and he walks toward the door, all of a sudden the whole crowd just go, horse following him over there, being led by the band Kiss, who I also had a chance to interview while we were there. And that's actually not a juxtaposition you might think of ordinarily, Kiss and then Tony Bennett. Although Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga have become quite a team. That was something to see Lady Gaga not that long ago. Right? Oh, yes, with Liza Minnelli. It was really something to see. And the fact that so many people remarked on it mm-hmm. tells you something about the discourse of modern society. You know what I mean? What she did is what any good person should do in that situation. But it's rare now especially for someone that's that famous as expected. And that was right after the bitch slap from Will Smith to Chris Rock. That happened just moments after. So it was counterbalancing the ugliness of what happened a few moments before. Did you ever have any interviews where you just didn't work, no matter what you tried to get someone to kind of get out of their shell or tell you what you wanted to know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I got a couple of them for you. One was Mario Lopez. Oh, he was on Saved by the Bell, of course, and he's one of the hosts on Extra, Extra. He was promoting something. So I'm trying to talk to him and he sounds like he's out of breath. Well, he was on a treadmill and had no interest in talking to me. I didn't take it personally. He was on a treadmill while the interview was going on. Yeah, it sounded to me. He was doing something that was making him breathless and he didn't acknowledge it. Hey, just give me a second to catch my breath, grab some water and we'll continue. No, nope. just do the interview because... My agent scheduled it and, you know, well, it wasn't very good. So I didn't air it because I pre-taped almost all the interviews so I can cut them down and just give them the best. Morning radio, you got to keep moving things along. Then there was Keith Emerson. There was a 70s band, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Oh, yeah. I remember them. So I was going to interview him. He was in England, which is like five or six hours ahead of us. And I call him up. It's probably nine o'clock here, two o'clock there. This little voice answers the phone. Hello. Hi, this is Mike Moore, and I'm calling from the U.S. I have an interview appointment with Kate. Is he there? Well, he is. He's sleeping right now. <laughs> it was his elderly mother. Mm. Well, could you please get him up for me? Okay, I'll see if I can wake him. He's a rock star. He's supposed to be sleeping at two in the afternoon. <laughs> he comes to the phone a couple minutes later, and clearly, you know, Nobody's really wide awake when they get up, especially if you're taking a midday nap. I know I'm not. So it was not a very good interview. It just couldn't use it. All kinds of great questions. I just dig all over the place to find stuff that's going to surprise people. So I got nothing out of that, never aired it, but I did learn a lesson. The next time I interview a rock star and mom answers the phone, that's who I'm going to interview, not the rock star. She's going to drop a dime on her kid. Okay, now you're on to a really great idea because... I don't know whether you've ever done it or you've heard other people do it. I haven't because it's hard to get to some of these people. But I have always been curious about the family members of ultra successful, the children, Bob Dylan's kids, to take an example. One of them was profiled New York Times a few years ago, and he's in the advertising business, writing jingles and producing, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then I've read there was a book written by Steve Jobs' daughter, Lisa, that got a lot of publicity a few years ago. I've always been curious about that because it's such a hard thing. There are only so many life characters by definition that are so successful in their fields, whatever they happen to be. And then imagine you're the kid through no fault of your own. You happen to be living with and grew up with someone that just won an ultra gold medal and whatever. It must be challenging. 
It is. And I guess I've had a few one degree separation of celebrities. Simon Cowell, who was the mean guy on American Idol for the first 10 seasons or so. Sure. Yeah. I had the chance to interview his brother, Tony Cowell, because he wrote a book about his brother, Simon. Imagine that. Uh huh. Okay. So I got him on the phone. He was in England and his voice was a dead ringer for Simon. It was like I was talking to Simon. So I thought, hmm, I have an idea. Let me see if I can pull this off. American Idol was like the big must-see TV show back 15 years ago. So I said, happy to promote your book. How about if you come on every Wednesday morning and you judge, you tell me about some of the singers you saw last night because people are going to be tuning in. I'll introduce them once and they're going to think, I got Simon Cowell on the air because he was that much of a dead ringer. So we did that probably 10 or 15 times over a couple of year period just because I thought, well, yeah, I got nothing to lose by asking him. And it worked out great. Another one, Sandra Bullock, of course, the actress. Her brother lives not far from you. She's in Vermont and she is a baker and she did a book. That's her, her sister. Exactly. Yeah. Just saying, or I can't think. Of, it's kind of an odd name. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to her and she was very nice. I think siblings are okay with it if you're respectful or playful. But if you start trying to dig through the dirt with the first question, you're going to get a click. No, it's less that that I'm interested in. And even siblings. Yeah, I can see that. I was thinking more of the kids of someone like that. Although siblings could also qualify for that. Just how do you process things? Because everybody wants to fulfill their potential in whatever field it is, whatever area it is. You want to live a good life. You want to do good things for yourself, for others. And at some point, you have to come to terms with the fact that there's someone that is just large in life, extraordinary, and ideally embrace it and love it and respect it and, and admire it, but not let it get you kind of in a funk or down or anything else. And that's psychological human process. I'm very interested in. I think you nailed it when you said, sort of leading into this, that how do you get to these people, especially if they're children or they're minors or nobody's going to let anybody who wants to ask them questions in today's world, especially with social media, the wrong thing gets out too fast and you can't put that gene back in the bottle. So back to the treadmill thing for a second. I once had a guy trying to sell me something when he was on the treadmill talking to me and he explained why he was on and it was a good reason, but still it was really kind of extraordinary. It's distracting. I'll give you one more story because this one is kind of weird the way it ended up. I had a chance to talk to Bill Cosby, who was uh, coming to a show at the arena at UNH. And so they wanted to know if we would interview and help promote the show. Sure. Cosby? Hell yeah. This is maybe 2004, 2005. So we set it up. I call him. That's how it usually was. And it's supposed to be a 10 minute interview. And then I usually cut it down to five or six. So we're talking for 20, 25 minutes. I can't use any of it because he's very stream of consciousness in his approach, especially when he's doing it. One thing just goes into the next and radio is all bite-sized pieces. I'll give you a question. Give me a 40 second answer and I'll move on. None of that happened. There was no way that I could actually fake it or edit. So, all right, that's part one. That was disappointing. I didn't get to air that. It was pre-recorded. But I was able to secure tickets to take my then 23, 24-year-old daughter backstage before the show to meet Bill Cosby because he knew I was from Detroit and he was talking to me about his favorite Coney Island hot dog place in Detroit. And I said, you know what? I'm going to see you next week. I'm going to call and see if they'll send you some of your favorite hot dogs. So I called and this Coney Island place, no, nah, not interested. All right, fine. I tried. So I found a local Coney Island hot dog place that was, I thought, pretty good. And I brought it to the behind stage an hour before he was to go on. 
And I get there and he's got one of those things that's just like all fruit with the sticks. Uh, I forget what it's called. Oh, yeah. Edible arrangements. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's interested in that. No interest in the hot dogs. Fine. I don't care. My daughter is with me and we're just the three of us. And we're kind of sitting together on a couch just talking about politics or whatever. And he was very gracious and very nice. And my daughter grew up 10 years earlier watching the Cosby show. So I thought this was kind of a cool thing to do for her. So I don't remember exactly why this came up, but she said a few years later to me when we were talking about dad, there was something creepy about Bill Cosby. Well, we all know what's happened since then. This was before any of that came out. She just had this vibe and I didn't see anything. He didn't do or say anything inappropriate at all. And I think women are much better at discerning things like that than men are. Typically, it's the man that's sending out the creep vibes. It was just kind of uh, disappointing all the way around. Yeah, well, that was disappointing for a lot of America to discover such a thing. And much worse than the discovery is what happened to all those women that he abused. Typically on the SIDCAST, even though I'm kind of, you know, business school and deal with a lot of CEOs and leaders, I don't have very many CEOs on. Sometimes I have them from startups or entrepreneurial, but bigger company CEOs, there've been a couple of examples. And the reason is because they are so well-trained in media that you never get what's real. It's all practice. They've got their lines. They're like a politician. You ask them a question and they're experts switching it around into whatever it is they want to talk about. So I guess my question for you is, did you have people like that? And as an interviewer, have you found any techniques or methods to kind of break through that years of media training? I have not been successful at that. You know what? You're right. They're trained. They know what they can and should say. And unless you're Elon Musk, and I'm sure you've had him on two or three times, <laughs> he's going to say what he wants to say, but most of them don't want the bad publicity. So the only time I've really found that to be a problem for many years, every four during the primaries, we would set up a booth at a local restaurant and have all the politicians come in. And it was really very cool. I'm not a political guy, but I did my homework and I tried to find relevant things to talk about. No matter what you ask them, in many cases, they'll just change the subject or all you got to do is watch any of the political interviews on TV. Now, in many cases, they will not answer the question, sadly. They're really good. But actually one politician, actually one president that did answer a question, actually two interesting questions that you gave them, was President Obama. And I think that was in 2012. And I'm wondering whether we could maybe listen to the first of the two little clips and hopefully everyone will be able to hear it well, because, you know, we're not in this kind of sophisticated studio, but I got Mike <laughs> that knows how to do this type of stuff. So let's play. Maybe you could set it up yes. and then play the clip and then we can talk about it. OK, so, yes, I've interviewed a couple presidents, got to talk to Joe Biden during the last primary in New Hampshire, which wasn't very successful for him. But after that, he was off to the races. But in 2012, I guess one of President Obama's people reached out. We were a big station and WZID still is. And so a handful of local stations around the country were invited to interview President Barack Obama on the day before the actual election, re-election in his case. He said, sure, we'll do that. I can put that on my resume, check that box, interviewed a sitting president. But I talked to my partner, Tracy, and we decided that we need to kind of break the mold and ask him unexpected questions, hoping that he wouldn't feel disrespected. Now, I know that, and this is one of the tricks I've learned over the years, is when you interview people, you give them one or two kind of softball questions and let them get comfortable with you. So I'm pretty sure we did that. But then we said, Mr. President, my partner, Tracy's daughter, Taylor, is in the studio with us. She's 12 years old. And would you mind answering a question for her? And he said, absolutely. So I'll hold this as close to the microphone as I can, and hopefully it will sound okay. 
Mr. President, my mom won't let me date until I'm 16. Do you allow your daughters to date yet? Well, Taylor, that is an important question. Uh, you know, Sasha it does not yet seem to be uh, interested in dating. Uh, but who knows, uh, maybe next year she's going to be uh, more interested. Malia is now in high school, and so uh, there hasn't been anything official yet. You know, being a parent's not always easy, Taylor. You guys think you have it rough, but uh, being the parent's not, not too easy either. We worry about you guys so much uh, because we love you so much. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, didn't that, oh, just make the whole thing? Isn't that a great answer he gave you? He didn't expect it. It was out of the blue. It was a little wacky, but it was such a great answer that every parent can relate to. That's exactly the point. We were hoping to get him and neither of us felt that we needed to help him get elected or not be elected. We just wanted good radio. And I think we achieved it with that because Tracy thought, oh, yeah, let's bring my daughter in, you know? It took him out of the political, it wasn't as toxic then as it is now, but it was still somewhat poisonous. As you point out, he got to be a dad, he's a parent, and it was a great answer. And then, of course, her little, oh, at the end, really put the cherry on the sundae. And so there was one other question that I decided to ask, and, and to set this up, at the time, there was a rap singer from Korea by the name of Psy. Uh, no relation. Oh, you're Sid. Sorry. And his name was Sai. <laughs> I can't remember his last. I think that was all it was. And he had this dance that like got 12 zillion views on YouTube and it was very catchy. And so I was hoping that Mr. Obama had heard of this uh, Korean rapper. And I said, if you are elected and if at the next inauguration, will you do the Gangnam dance, as it was called, at the inauguration? You asked him that. I asked him that. And, well, you'll hear it again here. The right if one. If you're reelected, might you and the First Lady bust out your take on the Gangnam Style dance in January? I tell you what, uh, I I just saw that video for the first time, and uh, I, I, think I, can, I, I think I can do that move. But uh, I'm not sure that uh, the inauguration ball is the appropriate <laughs> time to break that out. You know, maybe do it privately for Michelle. Whoa. Stop the presses. Another great answer. I'm thinking how many other politicians, CEOs, leaders, mm -hmm. public figures, I'm sure some could, but it's an appropriate answer. It doesn't demonstrate that you're annoyed from a dumb question. You're going with it and you're respecting it. And at the same time, there's a seriousness. Like, well, I don't think we would do that at the inauguration. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a, probably a good call. We're glad that you were the president. That was impressive. I think he answered it because he was comfortable enough with us. I think he liked the tone. I think he liked the fact that he didn't have to give a serious political statement about policy or politics or whatever. And as you said, he just went with it. He went with the flow. And as a result of that, it got picked up by every publication that I could find. The next day I Googled Rolling Stone magazine, Wall Street Journal, NBC News, and the list went on. And there it was. Our call letters were out there and that kind of made us heroes with the managers at the radio station. <laughs> well, by the way, I believe we're Republicans, so I'm surprised I didn't get any crap for that. <laughs> That's funny. Very cool and kind of neat to hear again his response. Yeah, thinking out of the box is what you got to do sometimes. Doesn't always work, but when you take a chance and you bet on yourself, good things do happen. That's my CEO speak. Anyway, go ahead. Let's talk about not such a happy time when you were on the radio as well. And that's 9-11, of course. And I remember it was a Tuesday. It was a sunny, beautiful day here in New Hampshire, September 11, 2001. And I was doing some errands in town right here in Hanover and hop in the car and turn on the radio. And then you hear this thing that didn't make any sense. 
And then you rush home to start watching and then you're glued to the TV. Then you're starting to answer calls from people that know that you're in New York a lot to see if you're in New York. And then you're hearing much, much, much worse. What was it like for you being on the air that morning? Horrifying. I was actually live with my sportscaster who was in another city and he was doing the sports and he had a TV monitor on the wall in the studio where he was. And he said, hey, Mike, I'm watching the TV and I think a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I'm thinking, oh, kind of like when the Empire State Building got hit by a single engine plane back in the 30s or 40s, whenever it was. But of course, very soon afterwards, we knew that was not the case. And then I started watching the TV and it just went from there. So it kind of happened in the moment for me. And I didn't have much visual notice to go on, but I'll never forget that. The toughest thing, though, was the next couple of days was being on the radio and just letting people call in and just open their hearts and their souls. And, you know, I don't think I had a dry eye for three or four days because of the stories Mm -hmm. that people phoned in and either they knew people that lived in New York. I don't know if anybody called and said they lost a loved one in the towers at the time, but it was tough. But then I got to thinking, all right, when is it okay? You pointed out it was Tuesday. When is it okay to go back and do a kind of a wacky morning show again? Doesn't feel right yet. So the week went through and I guess over the weekend, I thought about it a lot and decided Monday I'd come back, fresh start, new week and acknowledge everything. And when people want to talk about it, but just move on with the other things. Because as they say, if you change your life, the terrorists win. So I think We gave enough respectful time to the issue, but needed to move on. And I actually interviewed Seth Myers, who is from Bedford, New Hampshire, not too far from where we both are, Sid. And he had just been hired by Saturday Night Live prior to that happening. And and I got to interview him a couple of years after that. And I'm just going to read a very short transcription of what he said to me when I asked him about what it was like getting first job on NBC. Saturday Night Live, how do you be funny? Because I think the first show went live a few weeks later. So Seth Meyers says, it was crazy. I moved to New York August 20th of that year and our first show was September 29th. And it was a crazy night for me because it was both my first night on Saturday Night Live, a show I'd been watching my whole life, as well as the first Saturday Night Live back after 9-11. And Lauren Michaels invited Rudy Giuliani and all these police officers and firemen. It was amazing. You know, I look back at it and realize how positive it was that it let people know that it was all right to laugh again. So it's something that I think all entertainers probably struggled with for the weeks that followed. And I think I'm probably going to mess up the punchline, but I think one of the jokes right at the beginning was Lauren Michaels talking to Rudy Giuliani and saying, when do you think it'll be all right for us to start being funny again? And Giuliani saying something like, what do you mean you've been funny or some such thing? (laughs) (laughs) That's probably how it went. And that was an earlier iteration of Rudy Giuliani that if uh, people were not around or following in those days, would not imagine that it could be that way. Speaking of, and we don't want to speak too long of this, but speaking of former President Trump, did he ever call in? Because he seemed to call in all over the place, to the New York stations, of course, where he was. And sometimes call in impersonating. I mean, did you hear that? Impersonating other people? When I worked for Kurt Gotting, I had a professional impersonator who was there every day. So one day we'd have Ted Kennedy call or Robert Perry of the Celtics or other well-known, mostly local people that who had distinctive voices. I never did get to interview the former president. I was prepared to. I wasn't excited about it. I'm not going to lie. Because the station I was at during the 2020 election cycle, before I accepted the job, I said, this, this is not a political show. And it was really, really toxic, as you, I'm sure, recall at the time. So I said, please 
don't book any politicians. I will not interview them because first of all, no matter who you have on, you're going to upset half your audience. I'm pretty apolitical. Yeah, I could get into an argument, I suppose, but then there's going to be a lot of people that say, oh, gee, I didn't know you felt that way. I don't like you anymore because people won't accept you for your views these days. They just accept you if they like you or not. So they respected that. Now we did have a governor, a Chris Sununu, and a couple of the senators, Hassan and Shaheen on, but that was during COVID and they were presenting information for public consumption on what they should be doing. And it was very important. So I did make exceptions for that. Didn't ever talk about politics, but I told the owners of the station, can't do it. It's not going to work out well. This is an entertainment show. As soon as you flip the switch to politics, you're losing half your audience. You know, you mentioned Governor Sununu. So you may have interviewed or knew Colin Van Ostern, who was the Democratic candidate for governor and he lost the Sununu. He was a former student of mine, in fact. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And he is also on this season of the Sidcast as a oh. guest because he is running a very, very large, uh, let's call it consortium of venture capital firms that are all university-based helping alums start businesses, which is a very, very cool thing and kind of fits a lot of the things he's done before. Mm -hmm. I remember that election campaign quite well. Yeah, you know, we're in New Hampshire. And so every four years when they come in, as you said, you did talk to them or interview them, you know, Biden and uh, probably Hillary Clinton and lots of others over the years, right? But that wasn't this kind of rule you just described. This is kind of New Hampshire has its moment in the sun. Yes, exactly, Sid. We had the opportunity, I had a really good relationship with the woman that ran the center of New Hampshire, which is now a double tree Hilton. And they gave us prime real estate. You know, there were radio stations all over the building and in the conference rooms and everything else. We were right there in the lobby as people walked in. So as we spotted somebody, we'd send one of the producers, well, go over there. There's Anderson Cooper or there's whoever politician. And they would bring them over and we would get to talk to them. And it was okay. It was political, but it was fun. We never let it really get too terribly serious. Did you interact much with some of these, the national media mentioned Anderson and others? They were all here. Everybody would come mm -hmm. here every four years. I remember even in Hanover when there wasn't always, but there was often a debate, one of the debates in Hanover, I'd say every cycle or two, but all the politicians would come here, of course. But for the presidential debates, everybody would be here. The national press would be here. I mean, the whole town looked different because of all the trucks, you know, with the satellite and all the rest. And I always got the impression, you know, they would come in. It's New Hampshire, how quaint, how nice, it's freezing, do their thing and then leave. And they'd have their stories about famously independent citizens of New Hampshire and the voters, and they'd be in the coffee shops and all the rest. It's almost like you could take the media, 75% of what the media does in any election cycle and repurpose it four years, eight years, 12 <laughs> years, 16 years later. Right. I don't know that they really get at, maybe it's not that important to them, but they really get at what is really going on here in these tiny states where people live in freezing cold weather and stay here and create. I feel like there's a missing story there. I mean, maybe that comes out in your shows because you're New Hampshire based. You know, also just to continue before I let you kind of comment on this, finish my soliloquy here. During COVID, so many people have moved to New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, lots of other places, including these small places and have discovered what life is like. Some no doubt left when they discovered what mud season looks like and what February can be, that February lasts, you know, a hundred days, this type of thing. <laughs> anyway, what do you think about all that? What's your sense of over the years seeing all this up close? It's all just marketing. They're only here because they really have to be. They know that there'll be cameras everywhere. And you're right, Sid, you look up and down Elm Street in Manchester and it's just, you can't squeeze anything in between all the satellite trucks and you run into them when you don't expect to run into them. 
And you talked about the media people. I had a chance to interview the late Peter Jennings after weeks of you know, trying to get that one finagled, but he was going to be there and he came up to the little coffee shop we were at and Katie Couric was there and all the politicians. They get it. They know it's retail uh, politics. Yeah, but there's been constant every year. Well, this is going to be the last year that New Hampshire and Iowa are going to be the first two stops in the political season. So that scares the heck out of out of New Hampshire people because the Secretary of State recently resigned after 30 or 40 years, retired, and now we don't know. This new guy's going to fight for it the way that the previous Secretary of State did. So everybody's hoping so because, let's face it, it's also a money grab. All the restaurants, they've spent huge amounts of TV money on the local station, Channel 9, and it kind of makes New Hampshire special. You know, Dixville Notch, 12 people voted midnight. It's all a big thing. It's been going on for several decades. And I like being part of it because it was something I got to be a part of every four years. I've probably done four of these broadcasts so far, and I don't know that there'll be any more for me, but I liked it. It is good for New Hampshire. It is fun. It is a big money maker, And there is a good argument to be made for why it should come. And maybe Iowa as well comes so early, these small states, because no one would pay any attention to these small states at all. In fact, it doesn't take long until all of the attention are on the five swing states anyways, which is a whole problem with the political system that you focus on the five or six or seven swing states and you don't care. You don't care about California because it's Democrat. You don't care about most of the South because you know it's going to be Republican. That's not the best democratic system I could think of, but that's what we got. I do want to ask you, though, I know you've had some surgery of all things on your vocal cords, which has got to be like the craziest thing for someone in your line of business. How have you managed that? And I mean, that must have been scary. That's your bread and butter. It is. And it was very scary, but I really was fortunate. It can come from just talking too much, too loud. Acid reflux can cause mm. uh, erosion in the vocal cord area where the voice is produced. So I went to my doctor, my GP, and said, I'm having trouble with my voice. I can't go two sentences without having to stop and edit whatever I'm doing. Can you get me a uh, ear, nose, and throat guy or olentologist, whatever they're called? Because this is it. I, I mean, this is how I make my living. So the guy hit it over the fences. He set me up with uh, Dr. Stephen Zytels at the time at Mass Eye and Ear. Now he's at Mass General. And he did um, surgery cold instrument surgery, whereas laser surgery was kind of the thing at the time. This is uh -huh. uh, 2000 and then again in 2006. But Dr. Zytels is also the voice doctor for Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, Adele, Julie Andrews. When a second, Mike. Adele, who has had multiple surgeries, apparently. Well, I don't know how many she's had, but she has been to Dr. Zytel's here in Boston. Dr. Zytel's traveled with Steven Tyler after he had the surgery to one of their stops. I think it was in Minneapolis. I'm not sure why. It was interesting. You sound great. You're well. I am. Thank you. Yes. Uh, but six years later, it happened again. <laughs> and by then, Dr. Zytel's had moved up the street to a mass general. And suddenly, Dr. Zytel's no longer takes managed care. I had to write a $5,000 check just to get in the door to have this done, but it was worth it. And it was tax deductible to some degree. So there you go. I went in and he said, after I came out of anesthesia, he said, well, you know, I can't do this too many more times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got my attention, Dr. Z. It's yeah. all good. But I was so lucky because he is the guy. So this Jewel is another singer who had surgery. And then a lot of uh, factory workers, teachers, people that just probably stress their voices too much. And I took uh, vocal hygiene and therapy to help me, you know, speak a little more efficiently and put less stress on the vocal cords. And that's, you know, it afflicts you. You have no idea about any of that. 
Well, anyways, your voice sounds, I was going to ask you that too. It sounds great. I'll finish my sentence. How do you get that radio voice? Where does that come from? You know, I honestly don't know, but once you realize what it is, you kind of, for one thing, you speak from the diaphragm. You don't just produce the air right at the top of your lungs. You kind of push it up. It then creates less stress and also well modulated. So there are things that you can do. And I think any good vocal coach could help somebody who had even a marginally good voice to make it even better. And I speak a lot, so I learned how to project without killing myself. Right. You know, I always want to do sound checks before I do an appearance somewhere because I don't want to be screaming. That doesn't end well and hasn't for me. Mm -hmm. So I've learned a few things on how some preventive care in terms of that. Mike, uh, honest assessment. How's my voice? Do I have a future in radio or podcasting at least? Well, I would say you have a future in radio. One condition, massive pay cut. So stay where you're at. <laughs> I think I'll stick to podcasting, which pays nothing. <laughs> oh, I'm aware. I've done them before. I enjoy them, but I had to move on and do something else. And I'm not ruling out doing more, but there's over a million of them now. There's so many, but you have to really enjoy exactly what you said earlier, you know. The curiosity comes out and the conversations and just enjoy learning about other people. And along the way, generating some lessons and insights about True. life that I think can resonate with a lot of people. Well, I really enjoyed the conversational aspect of this. Didn't have your list of 30 questions. You know, it was just you and I hanging out and it was very enjoyable. I get interviewed a lot and this was one of the easier ones. We've gone well over an hour now, I think. Yes, we have. Thank you for that, Mike. I do have one final wrap up question for us which is my advice question. And lots of people get asked for advice about all sorts of things, but I'd like you to think about advice you would have given yourself way back when you were 20 years old. If you could magically right now go back in time, go in the time machine and show up to wherever the 20 year old Mike Moran is <laughs> and lean over and say, Mike, if there's one thing you want to know, there's one thing you want to think about, this is it. What would that be? Well, I should take that as a great setup, but I'll answer seriously. I wish that I had taken maybe a few more chances in my life. I felt that as the oldest of seven in a strict Catholic family, not, I'm not blaming Catholicism, I just think the nature of my parents were to be conservative. And I don't think until I really got into the world that I took as many chances like the Obama thing. Yeah, that worked out pretty well. I should do this more often. So I would tell myself to just let it fly once in a while. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. But boy, when you hit it, it's going to get people's attention. And I always tell people, don't gossip and be the hardest working person in your section, your department, your station, because you're going to be around a lot longer than the people that don't take it as seriously as you do. So take it seriously. Great advice. Thank you. Mike Morin, thanks for being on the SITCAST, the other side of the microphone, answering the questions instead of asking them. I really enjoyed it. And I know my listeners will have a good time with this episode. Thank you. Thank you, Sid. I had a great time. Let's do it again tomorrow. What do you say? I'm kind of busy, but I'll let you know. Whoa, wow. See how you are? <laughs> Take care, Mike. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. 
If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.